This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Hey, welcome back into the podcast. It is episode number 150 of Play-By-Play Cast, the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters toasted by a play-by-play broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. My name is Joel Godet. You can find the pod on social media at pxpcast i'm on social media at joel godet or email me j g o d e t t at bsu.edu saturday was a big day first of all it was the kentucky derby and uh, larry colmas has been a guest by the way on the podcast the voice of the kentucky derby and the triple crown on nbc uh, you can find him i believe he is episode number 101 if you want to scroll back through and listen to what it's like to broadcast a kentucky derby it was also May 4th, so may the 4th be with you. Uh, fun game that I've played as a broadcaster, and I know Kevin Brown did this because it was May the 4th with the Baltimore Orioles on Saturday as well. I don't know if anybody else out there does this, but it's just something that, that I've done for, for many years. Every time I have a baseball game on the Saturday of the Kentucky Derby, now that I'm in college, um, when I was in professional baseball and I was doing games still when, you know, the Belmont Stakes and such were going on, it became more feasible then. Um, but for college, it's pretty much just a derby thing. I write down in my scorebook as many names that I deem pertinent or sometimes that are harder to get in. Uh, names of Kentucky Derby horses, past and present. And I'll try to work them in over the course of the broadcast. And the trick is to do it without anybody really being able to pick up on that. It's just a fun way to make this broadcast different from every other broadcast. That's a like weird Passover way of saying that. Um, but it, it makes things interesting. Like, can I go through an entire broadcast... And drop in maximum security and long range toddy and tax and oh goodness, who else was there? Win, win, win. Like, can I get all of these names in over the course of nine innings? I think I got like 10 or 11. I had a really good day. Uh, Kevin Brown, if you go on his Twitter page, actually, uh, he shows his list of Star Wars phrases for May the 4th be with you. And. He actually wrote down what inning he got each of them in and actually had predetermined. He was like, okay, this works if this happens. So be ready for that. I thought it was really interesting to see. Like it was, there was one about Chewbacca, like bring it home, Chewy. Then it said like, if Orioles score run, just fun ways to add something a little extra, like the game within the game for us as broadcasters and someone at home may pick up on it. And then it becomes fun for them, too. Uh, but for us, it's it's kind of our little secret. Um, hey, hit us up on social media. If you play any games like that or if you do anything on the air that 
hey, over the course of 140 games, breaks up a little bit of your monotony during baseball season, uh, give us a shout at PXPCast at Joel Gaudet. I would love to hear um, some things that you guys do that are interesting or unique during the course of a, uh, a long baseball season. But that was how I spent my Saturday when Ball State Baseball took on uh, Northern Illinois in DeKalb. All right, on to today's guest. It is Harry Donahue from Philadelphia. And Harry Donahue is an interesting guy because we haven't had someone like him on the podcast before in 150 episodes. He's the play-by-play voice of the Temple Owls, first for football, then for basketball. Before that was the play-by-play voice of the Philadelphia Stars in the USFL. But for the most part, he is known in Philadelphia as an anchor on KYW News Radio. KYW is very famous. KYW News Radio 1060. It's like, I mean, if if you're from Southern Jersey or, you know, Eastern Pennsylvania, you know that jingle. Um, H- Harry Donahue is one of the, the hallmark voices until he recently retired on KYW. Sports guy, news guy. He was an anchor on the air uh, on September 11th. Um, you can actually find he was part of a panel talking about what covering that day was like in real time, if you go search him on YouTube. And on top of that, actually did school closings too. <laughs> he was the voice you tune into in the mornings on KYW to find out if you had school. Back when, you know, before the internet, and even after it. But, you know, you you turn on the radio to figure out if there was a delay or a closing or a what have you. Um, so he's got such a well-rounded and multifaceted career. So certainly we're going to get to all the play-by-play stuff we usually talk about on this podcast, but there's so many other things to dive into with Harry. And where we start is the simple question of what does he consider himself as he looks back on his career? Is he a sports guy that did news? Is he a news guy that did sports? Is he a guy that did a little bit of both? Harry Donahue is our very interesting guest. Um, And by the way, If for no other reason than the USFL stories, make sure you stick around to find out about uh, what it's like to have your color analyst become a player for three minutes. It's the USFL, folks. (laughs) Uh, We start there with Harry Donahue. Is he news? Is he sports? Is he a little bit of both? On episode number 150 of PXPCast. I mean, I grew up in, in a different era when I was getting into the business, I remember one of the, um, one of my mentors told me that, um, the best thing to be is the most versatile person you can be in terms of, uh, being able to handle yourself, <clears throat> whether it's on the, the, the news section or the sports section. I mean, sports was always part of my life growing up. And, um, uh, probably when I got into my professional career, uh, I, I, realized that, uh, you know, if I, if I wanted to just dedicate my life to sports, uh, it, it may not be the best route to take. By that, I mean, there were maybe more opportunities uh, getting into the business from a new side, a hard new side, than just getting into it from sports. So that's what I pursued. And then when I landed a job at uh, KYW in Philadelphia, which was an all news station, this is back in the 70s. Um, it was a station that uh, kind of was perfect for me because 
my boss at the time realized that I had a keen interest in sports. Sports was a big part of the format, even though it was an all-news station, but we did sports twice an hour. So therefore, uh, they allowed me to dabble both in, in sports and also hard news as a reporter and also as an anchor. So it, it was like the best of both worlds for me. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but that's how it began. I know you said when you got the job at KYW, uh, you couldn't believe it a little bit. Uh, why was that? Well, I was young. I was only, uh, I actually started there as a part-timer. I had been working in a, another station, a music station, actually, doing music and news. Uh, and it, going back, pardon me, I'm going back on it. It was it was one of those stations where you had to do everything, so that was good too to you know get my career started. When I got tipped in KLW, I was looking for uh, freelance part-time anchors. Um, Went down, met with the news director, and um, you know they were the preeminent station in Philadelphia uh, for years. I mean, ratings-wise, I mean if you go up in the city, uh, everybody knew KYW. You know, I mean, it was just one of those things. They did a little sports at the time. They had the Phillies back in the 70s and early 80s, back in uh, what we used to call the Halcyon days of that franchise when they were perennial in the playoffs. And then finally they uh, won the series. So, you know, we were the flagship station. I got to uh, cover that team on a regular basis, including uh, 1980, the playoff series with uh, Houston, the World Series with the Royals. And uh, it was a surprise to me, I guess, because I was so young, because I had grown up listening to KYW. And now here I was working there with what I thought were legends to me in the business. It's kind of the lost art of the radio sports reporter or the radio reporter in a lot of ways nowadays. Uh, What was it like to be a radio reporter of the Philadelphia Phillies and other teams uh, of that time and to be able to cover things like the World Series um, and Super Bowl trips and things of that nature? Well, back in those days in the 70s, print was still king. So whenever you were uh, involved in covering, whether it be news conferences or uh, pre-post-game, you know, conferences with players and managers, coaches, uh, you know, the print guys dominated, and I think that certainly has changed. Uh, now it's a it's a video oriented, uh, visual oriented, TV oriented business, much more so than it was then. Radio always had its place, but there was a certain, uh, I guess, for want of a better term, pecking order when it came to okay, these guys sort of like will have their questions asked first. And then everybody else <laughs> will kind of follow in. OK, and uh, maybe that's still true today um, among depending on the marketplace or the event you're 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 covering. But it was very much so the case. I remember it's a funny story. Uh, back in 1980, um, the Phillies went up to Montreal. This is the final weekend of the regular season. And um, Dallas Green, of course, was the manager. And they had to win two games in order to clinch the NL East and get into the playoffs. Montreal had a very good team. Phillies had a very good team. So the station, uh, probably because, well, two things. I was working for the station. It was the uh, flagship radio station for the Phillies. But also, it was a big deal. And um, 
that they decided to send me up there to, co to cover that series. So I went to Montreal. I'll never forget the, the series began on a Friday night. And back in those days, there were maybe four or five reporters, uh, newspaper guys, and uh, they would always meet with Dallas Green in his office about two hours before the game. And I walked in there, and I, that was the first road game I had done all year. And um, I walked in, and there's Dallas holding court with guys from the Philadelphia Inquirer, Daily News, a couple of suburban newspapers. And I kind of like walked in and stood in the back, and he stopped to answering a question when he saw me. And he said, well, fellas, turn around. Look who's here. This must be a big event. What are you doing here, Donahue? You know, and, and I, I was embarrassed, first of all. I can't imagine a, maybe somebody today would say something like that. But it was almost like uh, a recognition that, oh, a radio guy's here. How about that? There were no TV guys there uh, for that little session. And there I was sort of a fish out of water getting uh, exposed by Dallas Green in front of uh, these guys. So, like I said, were used to being having Dallas to himself. Did he let you stay? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Dallas, you know, well, I don't know how much you heard or recall Dallas. Dallas Green was uh, bigger than any room, bigger than any stadium that he was ever in, especially when his teams were doing well. And uh, he was the best interviewer uh, or interviewee, I should say, uh, or one of the best that I ever covered, because whatever was on Dallas Green's mind, he told you about it. And, uh, you know, the, the legendary story, if you look it up, it's probably if you Google Jason Stark and, and Dallas Green, Jason at the time was a uh, beat writer, the Phillies beat writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And of course, he's gone on to a lot of bigger and better things, but uh, a classic. And I was there that night, too. It was in Philadelphia. It was early in the season. And Dallas, uh, the Phillies were having a tough time hitting the ball to get the season started. And and Jason, you know, it pre prefaced his question to Dallas. And, you know, Dallas, uh, we always say that uh, pitchers have an advantage in spring training. And sooner or later, once the season starts, hitters catch up with them. That doesn't seem to be the case for team this year. And Dallas um, stopped, looked straight at him. <laughs> I'm going to use some profanity here you're if good. you don't mind. No, you're good. And he stood, and there was about 10 guys in Dallas's office. This is after the Phillies lost by 8 nothing or something. He said, fuck you, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> and Jason Stark, he didn't have a comeback. I mean... <laughs> Who has a comeback to that? That was Dallas's answer after Jason had kind of like eased into the question. Fuck you, Jason. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> can I can I quote you on that? Uh... <laughs> yeah, you can quote me. Right? <laughs> only there's only two. One of the two people involved is still alive, but I'm sure he doesn't forget. <laughs> um, what what kind of coverage would you be able to do? Um, from a radio standpoint back in that day uh, as well. What kind of leeway, what kind of creativity, how did you approach things um, in terms of what you wanted to draw from it? Well, <clears throat> I'll give you a, an idea. I remember it was, uh, I forget the year, but it was probably well into the 80s. And I was doing um, some stuff. The Eagles were in a playoff game. And uh, the, the flagship radio station for the Eagles back in those days, believe it or not, used to do about a 10-minute pregame show. And uh, the game was like at 1 o'clock. 
they would come on at 12:45 or 12:50, and that was it. I mean, that's all they did. I mean, it's hard to believe because now pregame shows start at eight o'clock in the morning, maybe earlier. For a and night last game. All, and yeah, and last forever, right? But so I went to our program director. I said, "Listen," I said, "Now this is a Sunday afternoon playoff game in Philadelphia." I said, how about if I come in at, uh, <clears throat> say, or, you know, I normally didn't work on weekends. I said, but I'll take over all the sport. We did sports twice an hour at uh, 15 and 45 after the hour. I said, I'll come in and I'll dedicate five minutes from 15 to 20 after and from 45 to 50 after uh, leading up to getting kickoff of the Eagles game to uh, just Eagles coverage. Forget everything else. And that had never been done before. And what I did was uh, during the week, I made it the point to go down to practice every day after my regular shift and get as much uh, tape as possible with coaches, players, so that I had plenty of material um, leading up. I basically did a, a four hour lead in and we didn't have the games on our on our station. But and then I, when it was one o'clock or twelve forty five, I hopped in my car, raced down to the stadium. Got there a little after kickoff. I'll never forget, um, I, I was in line trying to get something to eat, I guess, at halftime in the, in the press box. And there were a couple writers there. And uh, I was standing behind them in line. And these were guys from out of town. And they were saying, they were talking about the game and a couple things that had happened. And the one guy said, yeah, you know, I was trying to listen, driving to the stadium this morning. And the only thing I could pick up on the game was uh, something on the all news station. I heard the guy talking. He didn't know who I was. And and here I was in line and they were saying, you know, it was pretty interesting. He was talking to Vermeil about this or whatever. And I'm thinking, well, at least somebody was listening, you know, but you man, that's how. So, you know, I tried to do things that nobody else was doing. And uh, I remember one time being a, a an Eagles practice in 80. That's the year they went to the Super Bowl and lost to. Oakland and it was during the regular season and uh I mean I had I didn't have a I wasn't at every practice or every game but I used to go occasionally and they practiced at what was then the old uh because they, they were going to play a game on regular grass and of course veteran stadium was turf yep. so they practiced at the old municipal JFK stadium which used to be the host stadium for the army navy game every year and it was virtually in decay that was the only time they used it for the last 20 years was uh, for army Navy, but the Eagles, whenever I had a grass game, they would go over there that week in practice. And I never forget. I was kneeling on the sidelines in the pregame and I had a tape recorder with me. And uh, all of a sudden coach Vermeil himself, he didn't have a, an assistant or, you know, some manager come over. He himself walked over. He said, uh, how you doing? I said, good coach. How are you? And, you know, they're, they're doing their calisthenics. He said, uh, what do you got there in your hand? And I, I had a little cassette recorder. Uh, and I said, oh, this is uh, just my tape recorder. He said, is it on? I said, no, it's it's not on, coach. He said, well, do me a favor. I said, what? He said, uh, walk over there and give it to one of my trainers. And uh, he's going to keep it for the whole practice. Uh, unless you leave, then you can take it with you. But he said, I don't want you to have it with you while you're watching now, this wasn't a video camera. It was an audio cassette. And I, I never asked him why. I just did it. I mean, today that would probably become like a big event or something, you know. But uh, I, people would be sending out tweets on that. But I just said, okay, coach. And, I, I, you know, that's how, like, 
I don't want to say paranoid, but that's how paranoid some coaches could be. And you, you learn to deal with that. You know, I mean, uh, today I'm sure it's still the same, but like, you know, I don't know what he thought I could do with a, an audio recorder, but whatever it was, he wanted to make sure I couldn't do it. You're going to record somebody's cadence or something of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Or maybe, you know, hollering something at somebody to run a better, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, I was one of the strangest, <laughs> strangest requests I ever had from a coach. When did play by play come into the picture? Like what was the first game that you called? First game I ever did as a professional announcer <clears throat> was, uh, the first game of the Philadelphia Stars of the United States Football League. Okay, so so what March got you? March 6, 1983. What what made you say, like, I when, when the Stars came around, what made you say, you know what, this is where I want to go and I want to give this a, I want to give this a crack then? Okay, I was working at KYW. I had been there full-time since 1978. So this is 83. This is five years later. <clears throat> USFL began in 83. It was a springtime league. Game, the first game was in March. And, you know, it was a whole new venture. And uh, I had found out, you know, on the street that the uh, stars were looking for a play-by-play announcer. And I just figured, hey, let me give this a shot. So I knew... Uh, Carl Pearson, who was uh, formerly with the Eagles and had gone over the stars as the president. And I called him and asked if I would be, um, you know, could throw my hat into the ring to be the play by plan out. And uh, Carl said, well, let me uh, let me get back to you, you know. And uh, he said, uh, did you ever meet Miles Tannenbaum? And I said, uh, no, Miles Tannenbaum was one of the principal owners of the franchise. He said, well, why don't you give him a call and tell him what you want to do? I said, okay. So I called Miles Tannenbaum. Now, he was a businessman. He was a real estate investor, <clears throat> very successful, but a passionate football fan. He and his partners put up the money to buy the franchise. I called him. And I said, uh, Miles, we've never met. He said, I know who you are. He said, I listen to you every morning. I said, good. Okay. I said, I want to be your play-by-play announcer. He said, uh, well, what have you done? in play-by-play. I said, well, let me be very honest with you. Professionally, I've never done play-by-play. I said, but since I was 10 years old, I used to sit in front of the TV and I used to do play-by-play into a tape recorder. And um, I always dreamed of being a play-by-play announcer. And I said, let me tell you this, Mr. Tannenbaum. I said, you've listened to me on KYW. I said, I've kind of, you know, reached a certain status early in my life and my career working for the number one station in Philadelphia. I know my limitations and I would never put myself in a position to fail. By that, I mean, I'd never want to embarrass myself and ruin what I've achieved so far. That's exactly what I said to him. He said, you know what? I like that. I like that. He said, uh, let me have somebody call you back. We'll set up an audition. I hung up. I got a call in two days. I had an audition. And this now this is about two weeks <clears throat> before the start of training camp. And training camp back then was only about three weeks before the season. So this is sometime in February, roughly four weeks away from the start of the, of the uh, league. And I got a call to go to a radio station. And they were going to set me up in front of a TV monitor. And I was going to call one quarter of action by myself, no color analyst, 
And uh, it would all they would tell. I said, well, what game am I going to be doing? All they would say was it's going to be. A recent Super Bowl. And I'm thinking, okay. (laughs) so what I did was I got uh, videotape of the last of the previous four Super Bowls. Okay, somehow I got access to them. I put them in a machine at home. These are the old VHS tapes. (laughs) And I I sat for two days watching every play of the previous four Super Bowls, taking copious notes, okay? Memorizing as much as I could, rosters, plays, the whole deal. So I went to the station for the prearranged audition. I sat down in a room, the program director came in, he had a tape with him. He said, I got a first quarter of this game. We had a tape recorder set up. He said, all we want you to do is, Act like you're doing the play-by-play for the Super Bowl. Okay? I said, fine. Okay. Boom. He puts the thing in. He walks out of the room, turns on my recorder. Up came the, le- the, the, the Super Bowl of that year. It was Washington, Miami. Joe Theismann was the quarterback for the uh, Redskins. I couldn't believe it. I said, I had this game memorized <laughs> to myself. It's like going into taking a test when you know the answers. I mean, I aced it. I had everything bing, bang, boom, because I had taken out, I had some notes, you know, and uh, from each game of the four that I watched. So I just pulled out the notes for that game and off I went. And 15 minutes later, he came in. He said, okay, thanks. We'll get in touch with you. Two days later, I get a call from the stars and they said, uh, we'd like you to do our games. I said, great. How much are you going to pay me? 200 hours a game. I said, I'm in. And that was the beginning of my career. We opened up in Denver. My color analyst was uh, Vince Papali, who went on to, uh, of course, become the guy that they made a movie about, Invincible. And a little side note, Vince called me when they were making the movie. Mark Wahlberg, of course, played him. They were looking for a play-by-play announcer, not an on-camera role, just off-camera doing some play-by-play at the end of the movie. And I got that job too. So that was quite a, quite a year, 1983 for me professionally. And, uh, it's one I'll never forget. How cool was it to be in a Hollywood movie? Like what's that process like, or did you just have to record (laughs) something and send it to them? How does that work? Well, I, uh, was hooked up thanks to Vince with the producer director. It was a Disney production. And uh, of course I was in Philadelphia. They were in uh, Burbank. And uh, they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to reserve time for you to go to a sound studio in Philly. You don't have to come out here. We'll do everything in Philadelphia. We'll hook up a conference call and we'll direct you uh, as you're doing it. So I went down to the studio. Uh, They had sent me a script. They had yet to send video. It wasn't finished. So I was basically on a on a three-way hookup with the audio guy in Burbank, with the producer director somewhere out there, Santa Monica or whatever, and me in Philadelphia. And uh, I had copied it. They said, okay, you got the script? Yeah, okay. Read the first paragraph. I read it. They, okay, can you do this a little different? Every, all the direction was given over the phone. Hmm. We spent about, now the whole script 
in terms of minutes and what the final product was on the film, I don't know if, if you ever see it, it's at the very end, is about uh, maybe five minutes, okay? Where it's just me doing highlights of things that Vince supposedly was doing in his career with the Eagles. And um, I did, the first session took about uh, two to and a half, three hours. Okay. Then they said, look, we're going to bring you back. We got some more copy. We want you to read. Uh, can you be here? Uh, whatever day, a couple of days later, I said, I'll be here. Went back for about an hour. All told, I made, I think, four visits to the sound studio. And uh, the last couple were for a half hour or less, just to do a couple lines. <laughs> and at a couple points, I even said, guys, look, do you mind if I make a suggestion copy-wise? They said, no, what do you want to do? I said, well, this line about blah, 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 blah. Uh, that's really not the way I would say it. Can I say this? And they said, yeah, we love that. So I never got a credit as a writer, but <laughs> between me, you, and anybody else listening, I uh, I also had a, a chance to write a couple things over and do it my way. And the royalty is just flowing. Yeah, well, you know, I still get a royalty. Do you really? I I mean, the deal I signed with them was like <laughs> a one-time thing. But I also uh, get a check approximately every six months. That's wild. Uh, some of the checks are for the vast sums of like $18.19. <laughs> I don't know how Disney Productions does it. I guess it's a lot easier now in this digital age to keep track of stuff. But when you think of all the personnel for uh, every movie who have been involved in Disney movies for whatever cause, and they're still paying guys like me, I can't believe it. That is wild. And somebody's sitting yeah, there doing that's that. a wild, wild story. That's got to be a good job to be the guy who figures out who gets nine dollars every six months. <laughs> uh. It's probably probably just you know it's based on on demand views. Sure. In the beginning, they were a little bigger because, you know, they were in hotel rooms, and oh, airplanes yeah. and so forth. But now it's uh, but it's still I mean, it's the type of check where you put in a frame and don't cash it. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, I have not read the book yet. Um, it's now that it's summertime. Um, it's it's on my list of things to do. But the football for a buck book uh, that Jeff Perlman wrote uh, kind of as a diary of the USFL. Uh, what what are your memories of the USFL in turn like what's the most USFL thing you remember about the league and being involved with it well in Philadelphia it was a unique situation because over the course of the two years they were in Philadelphia and then of course the third year they went to Baltimore yep. before the league collapsed uh, they had the best personnel of anybody and they they went to the championship game each year uh, they won twice. They lost to Michigan. Bobby Bear. do you remember Bobby Bear wound up playing with the Saints, yeah. uh, ironically, for Jim Mora, who was the Stars coach. Uh, Michigan um, won the first year, Michigan Panthers, and then the Stars won the next two years. And they had, how can I say, there were a bunch of, a bunch of guys who were looking for a chance in some in some. Um, some of these guys were looking for a second or third chance, of course, but it was a mixed bag of ages, talent and uh, characters. And in Philadelphia, they really got lucky. And a lot of that was because of Carl Peterson, who I mentioned before, was a great personnel guy with the Eagles. There was a keen personnel guy with the stars and eventually went to the Kansas City Chiefs in the same role and had years out there with Lamar Hunt. But um 
Jim Moore put together a great staff. I think counting Mora, there were three other guys on that staff who became head coaches in the National Football League. Uh, Dom Capers was one of them. Uh, Vince Tobin was one of them. And uh, there's one other that I'm missing. And, of course, Jim was the head coach. He had um, – here's, here's another funny uh, Pally story. Vince, by this time, was uh, in his late 30s, but, he, but a great athlete. And he had played, you know, two or three years with the Eagles, primarily on special teams. But his position was wide receiver. So he and I would go to the practices, and uh, we'd always, he'd always get in Moore's ear and say, Jim, if you ever need anybody, I'm still in good shape. I can, I can you know – Guys down, I can help you out. And and Jim would just smile and say, okay, Vince, I'll let you know. Well, don't you know, one day, stars, I, I had three or four wide receivers that were dinged up and couldn't practice. So Jim comes up to Vince and says, hey, Vince, you want to put it on today and go out there? He said, oh, man, coach, I'm ready, you know, blah, blah, blah. So he goes in, he gets the pads on. This is a true story. Comes out, we're at Vet Stadium. That's where they practice. And uh, the quarterback was Chuck Fusina who was a hell of a quarterback at Penn State, runner-up for the Heisman uh, in the late, I think, 70s when he came out. In any event, uh, Chuck was a very smart guy. I didn't have a real strong arm, but he was very accurate. But by a strong arm, I mean he could stand 10 feet from a pane of glass and couldn't break it with, a, with his hardest throw. <laughs> and uh, he's on the sidelines warming up, and Vince goes out. And the players are kind of joking around. Here's Vince Papali. Now now he's wearing a uniform. So Chuck says, hey, Vince, I'll throw a couple to you, you know. All right, Chuck, you know. So he throws a couple. Next thing you know, he throws one down around Vince's crotch, and it hit him right square where he lives, and down he went. (laughs) I mean, like a ton of bricks. And he's, oh, my. And Chuck doesn't know what to do. He runs, he runs over to him. I ran over to him and Vince was in excruciating pain <laughs> to the extent they had to take him to the hospital. And here he had like his scrotum, like swelled up <laughs> and here's poor Vince Papali. like spent like three minutes in pads and went down on a pass from Weak arm Chuck Fusina. I mean, it was <laughs> probably the funniest thing I've ever seen in my career. You know, that one of my <clears throat> one of my partners came down on the injured list after three minutes on the, on the sidelines. But uh, that was that was a funny thing. But the, but the, my overall uh, memories of the league were we, we, they had a lot of talent. That was a quarterback laden league. When you look at guys who came in, Jim Kelly, Doug Flutie. Um, Steve Young, you name it. I mean, that league was loaded with talent. Herschel Walker, Philadelphia had Kelvin Bryant, who later played with with Washington. Um, I mean, they were Sam Mills, the late Sam Mills, undersized guy. I one time did a football game with Sam Rotigliano, who had been the head coach of the Browns when Sam came out of college. Sam was undrafted. He went to a small college, Monmouth, I think, up in North Jersey and, um, you know, division two or whatever. And he was five, nine, he weighed 210 pounds, a linebacker. Well, you know, that's not going to cut it on the paper test, the eye test when it comes to the NFL, but they, he was so good. They couldn't cut him until the very end. And, and 
Ritigliano told me it was it's the worst personnel movie ever made, <laughs> and uh, it it played out to be that way because Sam became an All Pro with the uh, with the Saints <clears throat> and uh, Carolina, and of course she was an All Pro or All at USFL for three years, and unfortunately died at a very young age of cancer. But uh, probably the nicest guy I ever met was Sam Mills. So if your play-by-play career starts in the USFL, uh, right. what, what does it mean now for you to, uh, for goodness, almost 30 years, get, be the voice yeah. of the Temple Owls? Well, the, actually, uh, how I got the Temple job was they had a new guy come in that year. I was <clears throat> working with the Stars the first year, new to Philadelphia, and he was in charge of uh, broadcasting for Temple. Heard me doing games, called me, didn't know me, and said, hey, we're going to make a move and hire somebody. Would you be interested? I said, sure. And that's how I got that job. In fact, my first <laughs> my first color analyst with Temple was the great Herb Adderley, who was a Philly guy, of course, had four Super Bowls, two with Green Bay, two with the Dallas Cowboys. He was breaking into broadcast. He didn't do much after that, but, uh, you know, he wound up being one of my roommates and color analyst for uh, my first couple of years at Temple. But doing games now, I mean, you know, it's, I take it for granted, but until the the ball goes up or the kickoff and then I realize, man, I'm living a dream, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not the, it's not network TV or, you know, NFL, but, um, I get, I get a hell of a lot of satisfaction from doing college football and basketball at a pretty high level and, and being around people like John Chaney and Fran Dunphy and, Bruce Arians when he was a young coach at Temple and, you know, all through the, the years of players and characters, different stadiums and arenas, uh, it's a pretty good life. I really love it. And I wouldn't still be doing it at the age of 70 unless that's how I felt about it. One of our favorite questions on this podcast uh, for people that work with coaches of that ilk, um, I guess you can apply this to anyone that you just mentioned, but I, I, I guess I, I meant it more in the in the vein of John Chaney. Uh, how did working with a guy like John Cheney make you a better reporter, question asker, play-by-play guy, person uh, in your career? I don't know if it helped me develop uh, in terms of my performance on air, but it made me open my eyes to see uh, a world out there that a lot of people don't see because Coach had his hand on uh, the pulse of everything. And uh, a lot of John Cheney's practice time was spent not talking basketball, but talking life and, and, and decisions that his, as he called them, his, his young men were going to be faced with making. And, uh, you know, people have perceptions of John Cheney who probably never met him uh, or spent any time with him. And all, all I would say to them, as I would say about anybody, but in particular, coach, that b- before you make any prejudgments about, you know, what you think he's like, walk a mile in his shoes and get him to tell you his stories. And I think you'd probably have a different impression. So that more than anything, I think that's what I learned from John Cheney. Uh, coach had his ways. I mean, this was a different time. I started doing basketball in the uh, in the 90s, late 90s. And um, 
we were not back in those days. Nobody had like had charter flights and all that stuff. <clears throat> so we would travel with the team, my, my analyst and, and producer. But as soon as we got to uh, the airport where we were going, rather than get on the team bus, we would have the rental car. And then the rest of the trip, we provided our own transportation. We could never travel with the team because the coach had a rule. Only players, managers, and coaches were allowed on the team bus. No sure. announcers. So after about three games, three road trips, I said to my uh, partner, John Baum, who was a great player at Temple and still does the games with me now for 20 years or so. I said, Johnny, you know, did you ever ask coach why he does this? He, oh, no. He said, I, you know, that's coach. I'm going to let him do it. He said, okay. I'm going to ask him. He said, okay. So one day we're sitting around. Uh, I don't know if it was a practice or what. I said, coach, I got a question. I said, uh, you have this rule about no announcers on the bus. And I'm just wondering, you know, why is that? And <laughs> without blinking an eye, he said, you know why? He said, because the only people on that bus are essentials and you're not essential. <laughs> and I just said, well, coach, I'm glad I know where I stand. <laughs> and we both had a pretty good laugh, but that was John Cheney in a nutshell. I mean, you know, he would just let you have it, and it may not be what you wanted to hear, but that didn't stop him from saying it. Did, and, did you uh, ever take the bus by the end of the time you guys worked together? Not, No, that didn't change until he had retired, and uh, Fran Dunphy came on, and Fran had no problems with us taking the bus. Hmm. Yep, that stayed. <laughs> did you? Uh... That, uh, that did not change. How close did you ever feel like you were to getting to, to broadcast a Final Four? Uh, boy, well, it was uh, back in those days. I'm trying to think the last time Temple I got to the Elite Eight. I didn't do the game that they um, – the last Elite Eight. And then the last – I guess the, the my first five years were John's last five years. He did not uh, – do well in terms of wins and losses. We didn't go to the NCAA tournament, mm. in other words. Um, so, really, I never had any dreams of doing. Why well, dreams? But uh, realistically, uh, a Final Four was a stretch. Well, so let me flip that then, because you've been doing football for longer. Um, oh yeah. What uh, what's it like? Because you've had the best of both worlds in in terms of broadcasting that team. They're obviously very good right now. Um, but there was a very long spell there where they weren't. Uh, <laughs> wh what was broadcasting that Temple team like? And, and how did you, you had to be very tell creative. that story? You had to be creative and entertaining. That, there was a stretch of uh, four or five years, maybe longer, I, I try not to remember, <laughs> where I was probably the losingest play-by-play -play college football announcer in the country. I mean, you know, we went through seasons of uh, – one and 11 a couple times. We had an offer. I mean, and we were in the Big East for some of those years when we were playing teams like Miami, Virginia Tech, teams that were playing for national championships. Okay. Um, Michael Vick at Vot Tech and Miami had uh, Clinton Portis and God knows how many other first round draft picks. I mean, it wasn't a, a level playing field. But Having said that, you went into every game, and I and I know the players did too. 
that, hey, we got a chance to win this. You know, you had to. I mean, it, it, it was the only way you could go week to week. You know, I mean, you had to be as optimistic as possible. Uh, was it was it difficult? Oh, believe me, it was difficult. But these kids practice every bit as hard as Miami and Virginia Tech and Syracuse and Pitt. They just didn't have the personnel, but th- they didn't quit. And as their announcer, I felt the same. I was going to give it my best effort as well. I saw some brutal games, brutal games. I mean, one week, one year we opened up, I think we lost um, – like 59 to nothing the first game to Louisville. And then we lost close to that to uh, Minnesota the next game out in uh, Minneapolis at the old dome that they played the Vikings at. And I'm like, are you kidding? We've given up like close to 120 points in two games and not scored. And yet we got 10 more games to do. You know how tough that is? (laughs) But, uh, hey, you strap it on or whatever, and you get after it the next week. And um, coaches did it, players did it, and announcers did it. And that's that's how I approached it. Last thing I have for you, and I'll, I'll, I'll end on this note, uh, and it's not a play-by-play related question. It's more just a broad uh, announcer question. Uh, how long have you sounded like this, and how much work went into your your persona, your voice, your instrument? Well... I guess I'd say, I guess I've sounded like this my entire life. Uh, (laughs) I never had a a voice lesson. I used to listen to games uh, all the time. Radio was king when I was, I grew up, you know, in the fifties and I would listen uh, to to play by play on, on the radio. Cause not all the games, you know, kids today or people today wouldn't believe this, but I mean, not all games uh, here in Philadelphia, the Phillies or, well, the Eagles games were all on t- – well, the road games were on TV, but the home games weren't. And you had to listen to the radio, and radio was king. Like I said uh, earlier, how print was king, radio play-by-play was king back in those days. And I, my, my real uh, hero in the day was uh, a gentleman by the name of Bill Campbell, who was the king of Philadelphia play-by-play. At one time, he did the Eagles, the Phillies. And uh, the Warriors slash 76ers after the Warriors left town, the Sixers came a couple of years later from Syracuse. He did all of them. He did every sport but hockey. And I later on in life got to know Bill very well. And uh, in fact, we did a couple Temple games together, both football and, uh, and basketball. And that was the highlight of my broadcast career, to be working with someone who was at the, at the end of his career is my career was getting started, but somebody who I had you know, tried to copy and, and, and listen to as a kid. And here I was sitting next to him doing games. Uh, that was, that was like hero worship. And uh, it, I, I had to pinch myself realizing what was happening. Well, uh, Harry, I, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that uh, Temple left the Mid-American Conference the year uh, before I got to Ball State. So uh, we haven't had the chance to uh, cross paths and call the same game yet, but hopefully at some point um, our paths cross. Uh, I appreciate you for for taking the time to to stroll down memory lane a little bit and uh, and and spend some time with us here. Well, it's a pleasure anytime I get a chance just to kind of relive how, how <laughs> far the journey's taken me, and 
lucky for me, it's not over yet. I don't think. And I'm uh, pleased to be able to sit down and answer some questions and share a little bit of my experience. Can people find you on social media or Twitter or track you down that way? Yeah, I am. I, uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, it's at Harry, H-A-R-Y, Donna, D-O-N-A. And uh, occasionally I'll drop a gem out there or a nugget or whatever <laughs> for what it's worth. Awesome. Harry, thank you. Uh, this will be uh, this will go up on Friday morning. It'll be this week's episode. And uh, I, I, I mean, again, I appreciate everyone for uh, for taking the time to do this. So thanks for uh, for, for for answering an email from a guy and uh, and and strolling down uh, through the past a bit. Joel, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. That is Harry Donahue joining us here on episode number one fifty of Play by Playcast. Harry is spelled with two R's, but his Twitter handle is with one R at H A R Y D O N A. At Harry Donna is the way to follow him on social media. You did hear that correctly um, when he said it uh, just a couple of minutes ago here. Uh, but Harry Donahue, thanks as always uh, to him for joining us and taking the walk down memory lane. Hey, Vince Papali is your color analyst. Throw your pads on and then take a football right, as Mauro Ronaldo would call it, to the peninsula south of the border. That is a uh, football professional career return that lasted all of about four seconds. But <laughs> I'm actually really stoked. I Football for a buck has been on my reading list for a very long time um, since Jeff Perlman had that book come out within the last year, um, or it's been about a year, I guess. Uh, I've I've wanted to dive into that and haven't had the opportunity, so I'm excited to 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 dive into some USFL uh, history and and cool to get that firsthand from Harry's perspective. And you know the John Cheney stuff is interesting. I feel like from a budgetary standpoint, I, I and I don't I didn't ask that question like who who paid for the rental car so that the radio guys could drive separate of the team. I feel like it might just be cheaper to have everybody ride on the bus. And, like, much respect to John Cheney, but it is kind of a punch to the gut when the basketball coach goes, yeah, you're not essential. So, see you at the arena. <laughs> Yay! Man won a lot of games, though. And, um, hey, outside of that, <laughs> seems like they had a really good relationship. Um, I just can't imagine... I mean, I'm in a bus league right now in the Mid-American Conference, so it's not like I would fly somewhere and then get a rental car. I can't imagine what it would be like having to just drive all over creation to do games here at Ball State. Everybody's in a little bit of a different situation. We all have our, our highs and lows and our pluses and, uh, and minuses in each spot of our careers. Uh, many thanks again to Harry Donahue for joining us this week. Until next week, when we'll have episode number 151 of the pod, my name is Joel Gadette, and the bump music is Marshmallow, and we are out. See ya! And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.